And I've titled uh, today's sermon, The City of God, but I might just as easily have titled it, Look Where You're Going. Look Where You're Going. Have you heard that phrase before? If you've ever taught a child to ride a bike, you'll know it's the phrase that keeps coming out. Look where you're going. Stop looking behind you. Don't look at the one holding you. Don't look at what you're riding over. Look ahead. Look where you're going. Uh, If you're learning to drive, you're told, don't focus on the steering wheel or the gear stick. Look where you're going. Look ahead. Look down the road. Um, If you're uh, mountain biking, cycling, uh, and you're riding through the forest and you see a tree coming up, don't look at the tree that you're going to hit. Look at the track that goes past it and you will avoid the tree uh, and avoid the obstacle. Look where you're going. Uh, It's true for life as well, isn't it? Not just for sports and activities that we do. If you're uh, stuck in the middle of your exams, uh, feeling discouraged, feeling fed up of all the work that you're having to do, don't fixate on the frustrations of the moment, but look ahead. Look where you're going. Look at the exams that you're going to sit and look at the results that you will receive if you put the hard work in now. And similarly, the New Testament often encourages believers to lift up their eyes and look where you're going. When you're sinking in the in the frustrations and the despair of uh, life, when, when the Christian life especially becomes difficult, the New Testament encourages us to lift our eyes and look where you're going. When we're denying ourselves time and time again in service uh, or in the fight against sin, the Bible encourages us to lift your eyes and look where you're going. Uh, Paul does it several times. In I, I wouldn't be surprised if you could find a reference to this somewhere in, in each of his letters. You can think of him in Philippians chapter 3, describing how to take hold of the prize for which is called heavenwards. You could think of him in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, describing these light and momentary afflictions compared to what is going to come. You could think of that great start to the the letter of the Ephesians, thinking of the great heavenly blessings that we have and how that ought to encourage us. And in Colossians 3, let me just read to you, Paul very explicitly and distinctly says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, again he says, set your minds not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Lift your eyes, look ahead, look where you're going. And Jesus speaks to his disciples on the night before Jesus was crucified. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be anxious. Don't worry, he says. Trust God. Trust also in me. Why? Because in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I I would not have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Don't be anxious. Don't be troubled. Don't despair. Lift your eyes. Look ahead. Look where you're going. And that's my purpose this morning. To try and lift our eyes and look to the place that we are headed. And we're going to do that by looking at Isaiah chapter 60 as a kind of concluding look at, at, at Isaiah. Uh, you, If you've got a really good memory, you ra- might remember that we have been going through a little series in Isaiah, although the last sermon that we had from Isaiah was at the end of March. So... You do need a a good memory to remember that. But my intention this morning is to kind of round off that series and give us a a concluding look at the way Isaiah finishes his prophecy. And so just to help get us back into the swing of things, I'll give you a quick reminder of what Isaiah is all about. 
In chapters 1 to 5, Isaiah begins his message with a message of condemnation. And he's describing how the leaders of Israel have turned away from God. It's not that they've forgotten God, and it's not that they've got rid of their religious practices. In fact, they've got all sorts of sacrifices and prayers and special days to honor God. But God's condemnation of them is, you just don't know me. You do not love me. The ox knows his master, and the donkey knows where he is fed, but my people Israel do not even know their own father, God says to them. And so Isaiah begins this message of condemnation. Your religion is just hypocrisy. And in chapter 6, Isaiah is called by God and commissioned and sent to preach. But interestingly, Isaiah's preaching is not a message of reform, changing the ways of the people. Isaiah's commission to preach is to confirm Israel in their sin. God says to Isaiah, make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close up their eyes. Why would God send Isaiah to do that? He describes so that this defective, damaged, broken tree can be cut down to its stump and so that a new seed can begin to grow out of the stump. That's God's intention. Now, in the following chapters, verse 7 to 12, you get a little bit of detail about who that seed will be. We're told that it's going to be the branch of Jesse. We're told that it's going to be a child born of a virgin. Uh, And we thought about the the wonderful prophecies in chapter 9 especially. And then, following those little hints, a great chunk of Isaiah's prophecy is basically a message of woe and judgment and condemnation. And we didn't spend much time in that at all, because it is heavy. It is hard going. And Isaiah says, God's judgment is coming, and it's going to land on you, and it's going to land hard. And at the end of chapter 39, things sort of come to a head. And God speaks to King Hezekiah and says, look, King Hezekiah, the Babylonians are coming, and they're going to take away Israel, and they're going to take away the people from this city, and there's going to be destruction, and there's going to be hurt, and there's going to be pain, and this will be my act of judgment against you. And... The frustration of the situation is that King Hezekiah, the kind of, the last vestige of godliness in Israel, just sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, well, at least it won't happen under my watch. It's all good with me. And at that point, you realize that if there was any hope for Israel responding to the warnings, now at last it has been lost. And history, Isaiah doesn't describe, but Elsewhere in history, we get the description of how King Nebuchadnezzar gets his Babylonian army and comes and and attacks Judah. Jerusalem is sieged. There is famine in the city. And and when all hope is then lost of holding out against the Babylonian army, people began to flee and the Babylonian army swoop in and they destroy the city and they take off any survivors as exiles into Babylon. And by all rights, Isaiah's prophecy ought to end at the end of chapter 39. Here's the problem, here's God's warning, and now it's come. Destruction as judgment. But Isaiah continues, and chapters 40 to 66 sit as one big block in Isaiah's prophecy. And it's a message that he's written to people 150 years on from when Isaiah is preaching. It's written to the people who are in exile, who are sitting in Babylon, who have endured and suffered the pain of the destruction of their hometown their home country. And Isaiah writes a message of comfort, amazingly. Isaiah chapter 40 begins, comfort, 
comfort my people. And from chapter 40 to 66, Isaiah is trying to comfort the exiles in Babylon. Why? Because a saviour is coming. A saviour is coming. He's going to be a victorious warrior. He's going to be a wonderful deliverer. He's going to be a compassionate saviour. He's going to suffer alongside you as well as for you. He's going to rescue you from captivity. He's going to deal with sin. He's going to turn the hearts of his people back to the Lord their God. And so he encourages the exiles by saying, keep your eyes fixed on the promise. Remember that seed that was described right at the beginning of the prophecy? Well, the promises of him coming are still there. He's coming. Keep waiting. Keep watching. Look where you're going. But you know, if Isaiah's message only gave details of a deliverer, a person might be left wondering, well, what then? Imagine, for example, the panic of uh, if you got home today after your church service and you found that your house was on fire. You'd left the toaster on or the oven or something like that. Your house is on fire. Panic would set in. And you'd call the fire brigade and within five minutes the fire brigade would get there and they'd get out the hoses and they'd spray down the house. The rescues would come and they would put out the fire. But what then? Well, all you're left with then is the, the, the smouldering rubble. The rescuer has come. He's rescued you from the, from the fire. The firemen have done their job, but, but it's not the end of the situation. It's not real. You've not been saved from the effects of the fire, have you? Consider an exile, an Israelite exile in Babylon. They're crying out to God, God, wouldn't you take us back to our home country, that, that land that you promised would be flowing with milk and honey, that land of peace and prosperity. Won't you take us back? And Isaiah promises a deliverer. But when they get there, well, then what? The temple's gone, the walls are gone, the people are gone, the fields are gone, the vineyards have gone, the flocks have gone. Then what? What do we do? Where's the salvation? And perhaps, maybe even you are in a similar situation. You are going through a very difficult period in your life. And you're crying out to God, God, would you get me out of this situation that I'm in? This health scare, the, the difficulties in my marriage, the uncertainty in my family, the, the uncertainty about the future with my, my job and my, my finances. Get me back. Go back to where it was safe. Undo this bereavement, this loss, this pain. Undo it. Let's go back to how it was six months ago when things were controllable and manageable. Lord, would you take me back? Would you deliver me from this? Resolve this difficulty. But then you're left asking, then what? To go back undoes the pain of the present moment. But does it really solve everything? Is that real salvation? Is that all that God can give you? Is that all that he has designed for you? Or is there something more? Well, all through Isaiah's prophecy, especially from chapter 40 onwards, he, as well as describing the deliverer who will come, he is also preparing us to think about what sort of salvation that deliverer will bring. And the focus in the earlier chapters are on the deliverer. But from chapter 60, Isaiah shifts his vision. And he really emphasizes the salvation that the deliverer is going to bring. And so chapter 60 is uh, focusing on what the, what, the, what the Savior is going to do. And he describes it as a, a city. The image that we are given is that of a city. And I described this earlier when we read chapter 60. Uh, you see it, for example, in the, the heading, 
uh, of your NIV Bibles. Chapter 60 is headed, The Glory of Zion. Zion being the city. You see it in verse 14, those who will call you the city of the Lord. Zion, the Holy One of Israel. God's plan of salvation centers around the city of God. Now, a little bit of explanation is probably worthwhile on this. What is Zion? Well, in a very literal sense, Zion is just the name of the hill on which the capital city, Jerusalem, was built. And so the first time Zion is met, or the first time Jerusalem is mentioned, it's, it's referred to as Zion because that's the hill where Jerusalem would eventually get built. But because of the significance of Jerusalem, Zion often takes on more meaning than just meaning the, the hill. And Zion is a word that is often used to refer to either Jerusalem, the city, used as synonyms, or it's used to refer to the people of Israel, but especially because in Jerusalem there was the temple of God, Zion often takes on a, a particularly spiritual significance, a theological significance. And to talk about Zion is, as here, to talk about the city of God. Now, in the context, remember, Isaiah's writing to the people in exile. You might think that what Isaiah's doing about talking about this city is just simply talking about a return to Jerusalem. Oh, we'll be back there one day. It'll all be okay. But as you, uh, well, with, as is the case with so many of Isaiah's prophecies, what might be true at face value, the more you read Isaiah and the more you see really what he's getting at, you see that actually he's got a much bigger purpose in mind. And so as we go through chapter 60, we're going to see that Isaiah is clearly not just talking about a return to Jerusalem. He's talking about a far grander vision of God's salvation. Uh, where God will set up this great city of God for his people that will be the, the greatest act of salvation that God has wrought for his people uh, ever. Now, there's five things I want to draw to your attention from this chapter that are true about this city. One, that this great city will be a residence for all nations. Verse three, nations will come to your light. Kings will come to the brightness of your dawn. Verse 6, herds of camels will cover your land, young camels from Midian and Ephah, they are other nations. And all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense, again another nation. People are going to come, they're going to flock to the city. Verse 7, all Kedah's flocks will be gathered to you, the rams of Nebaioth will serve you. Verse 9, surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar. You can imagine yourself standing on this hill of Zion uh, and looking out over the plains, and you see just people streaming towards this hilltop city from miles and miles around. As far as you can see, ships on the sea, uh, flocks walking through uh, the hills and along the roads, uh, wagons uh, coming uh, down the highways. People are flocking to this great city. And the gates are propped open, verse 11. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut to allow this great stream of people to enter the the wonderful city of God. Now, one of the things often in literature when you read about cities is that cities are a place of crime and darkness and hurt and disease. The mass of people within a city provides cover for anonymity. Life is cheap because there's so much of it around. And cities become a hotbed of crime and wickedness. But in this city that is described in chapter 60, it's not wickedness that characterizes the city, but prosperity and peace. Why is that? What's what's causing the difference? You've got far more people than any other city is going to have, but you've got greater peace. 
And the reason is because the people are not flocking to this city for their own gain. They're not flocking to the city to serve themselves. They're flocking to the city to serve another. Uh, Verse um, uh, 10. Foreigners will rebuild your walls. Their kings will serve you. Verse 9. They're coming for the sake of honoring the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. People are not coming to make a quick book or find their own riches. They're coming to offer tribute to the king, to the Lord himself. And actually, in this vision, you get a you get a picture of the Abrahamic promises. Right at the beginning of the Bible, God gets Abraham and he makes some promises to him. You will be a great nation and all the nations of the earth, those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. And you see that played out in this chapter. At the center of this chapter, you've got verse 12. The nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish, for it will be utterly ruined. But of course, those nations that come in submission to the king of Zion enjoy its prosperity. And so God is is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. Many today describe the salvation of God as exclusive, too exclusive. For Jesus to say that he's the only way to the Father, it's just not fair. What about all those who are seeking God by some other means? In this chapter, you see that, yes, the salvation of God is exclusive. There is, after all, only one city. But if you read this chapter and the, 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 the abiding um, uh, sense that you get is one of exclusiveness, you've really not grasped what's going on. Yes, there is only one city. Yes, there is only one redeemer. Yes, there is only one king to serve. But exclusive? This is the nations of the world flocking to serve this great king. They don't have to become Israelites to serve him. It's not discrimination. It's inclusive, if anything. And the nations of the world flock to serve this great king and to become part of his great city, the salvation of God. For our world, which is today seems so divided by identity politics, the salvation that God is promising offers a a refreshing relief that unites the variety in the human race. Whatever your colour, whatever your language, whatever your history, Whatever your race, whatever your gender, whatever your nation, there is a place for you in the city of God. That's the vision that Isaiah begins to see. It's a residence for all nations. Secondly, it's a place of abundant joy. Uh, What are all these nations doing as they flock towards the city? Well, they're bringing tribute. They're bringing what they can and offering it to God. Verse 5 They are bringing the wealth on the seas is going to be brought to you. The riches of the nations will come. Verse 7, they're bringing their flocks and their rams in order to offer them as sacrifices on the altar. Verse 13, the glory of Lebanon will come to you. That is their their wealth, the pine, the fir, the cypress all together. And they're going to use it to adorn the place of my sanctuary and glorify the place of my feet. And people are coming from all over the world to bring their riches to serve God. And the inhabitants of this city enjoy the benefits of that wealth. Verse 16, for example, probably seems a little bit odd to our modern ears. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. Um, But I'm sure you can catch a a little bit of the vision that's been presented here. Uh, The milk is the the creamy richness, the the fat, the, the goodness, the nourishment and sustenance. And it's coming not just from uh, the livestock, but it's coming from the kings, as it were, the the dignity of this vision. Verse 17 again shows that this 
City will not be a place of need and want, but it will be a place of rich provision. Uh, Instead of bronze, you will have gold. Instead of iron, you will have silver. Instead of wood, you will have bronze. And instead of stone, you will have iron. It will be a a, a wonderfully um, prosperous place. Now, often, when people think of the salvation of God, especially if they're thinking about heaven, they stop at this point. They think of heaven purely as a place of prosperity and goodness. A life of luxury, basically. Um, I was reading this week a, a quote from Jim Carrey, uh, the actor. And he said, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and get everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Now, especially for us in a very prosperous society who have got so much wealth, often our effort is to remind ourselves that wealth and prosperity is not the answer. And if if this is the place we stop in Isaiah's vision, then we've not really grasped the fullness of what he's presenting. Luxury is not what makes heaven good. It's not what makes salvation worthwhile. However, even though that might be the, the, the thing that we have to remind ourselves of so often, we don't want to take away from the fact that actually this is a part of God's salvation. And to so many throughout history or throughout the world today who live in a state of poverty or a want, there is no doubt that this aspect of God's salvation surely is welcome. That God's, the, the city of God will be a place where they no longer live in famine, but they enjoy the feast. A, a place where they no longer live in poverty, but they enjoy prosperity. For those who have lost everything, who, who have all their worldly possessions in a plastic carrier bag by their side, who would even count the plastic carrier bag as part of their possessions, the kind of poverty that we basically know so little about here in the UK. Those people, to hear of the salvation of God being a place of prosperity and wealth, surely is a good thing for them, a reward and a, um, a great relief to them. So it's a place of prosperity. Thirdly, it's a place of peace. Verse 18, there will no longer be any violence heard in your land. There will be no ruin or destruction within your borders. The reign of death and terror is over. Injustice will be gone. And the ruler of verse 17, for example, at the end of verse 17, I will make peace your governor and righteousness your ruler. The word really there um, harkens back to the idea of a slave driver. Now, for the Israelites, the, the slave driver image reminds them of their time in Egypt when they were literally slaves and they were driven by slave drivers. But now in this great city of God, there there won't be a space for slave drivers. Peace, well-being, righteousness, they will be the one that's getting you up in the morning and moving you forwards. There will no longer be any harsh taskmasters. The city walls are no longer there to keep enemies out, but they're to keep the inhabitants in within the sphere of salvation. Verse 18, you will call your walls salvation. Your gates are constantly propped open as an entry into praise of God. Now, for those today who feel the sting of death and the hurt of violence against them, whether it's the impending threat of their own mortality, stealing from them all their strength and effort, or whether it's the bereavement and the loss of other family members and friends, doesn't this vision of a city of God where Death will no longer reign. Doesn't it sound inviting? Worthwhile? You see, the salvation of God isn't just going to move us back a few paces. 
still yet vulnerable to the inevitable. The city of God is a, a, a new place where things are rewritten and that the problems and, and the frustrations of this world will no longer reign in that city. Fourthly, there is a reversal of fortune in the city of God. In the city of God, life as we know it will be turned upside down. Verse 22, you see this clearly. The least of you will become a thousand. The smallest will be a mighty nation. And again, if you move forward into chapter 61, verse 3, those who uh, I will bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Those who have been mourning will be given the oil of gladness. Those who have a spirit of despair will be given a garment of praise. And they'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting for the Lord. The, the ancient ruins, verse 4, will be uh, renewed and rebuilt. In the city of God, every past breakdown will be restored and fixed. Now, how welcome is that for those of you who have known little of prosperity in this life? Or for those whose lives seem to have been more often marked by fiery trial than by peace of mind? God is going to undo and reverse all those sufferings and sacrifices that you have made in this life on his behalf. How welcome is that for those who have perhaps felt that at times they've sacrificed more than was wise? How welcome is that thought for those who are questioning the worth of continuing? God is saying, in my city, all of your efforts, all of your losses, all of your hurt will be flipped upside down and you'll be rewarded tenfold over. You will be more than a conqueror because of the goodness that is coming your way. And so every sacrifice, every act of self-denial, it will be turned over to us tenfold in the city of God. A place where the least becomes the greatest, where the last becomes first, where those who have been faithful, faithful with a little will be given authority over much. It is a place where fortunes are reversed. And finally, what makes all this possible? Well, it is, fifthly, the presence of God. This is the idea which really pervades the whole of chapter 60. The thing that makes these things possible, the reason that the nations are drawn in, the reason and source of the abundant wealth, the victory over death, the reign of peace, the cause of joy. Why is it happening? Because of the presence of God himself. It's the city of God. Not just the city belonging to God, but the city where God himself dwells. In this city, there will be no need for the sun. Verse 20. Uh, verse 19, the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, because the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. What does the sun do for us? It warms us, it feeds us, it sustains us, it lifts our mood, it shows us the way, it lightens our life. Every day is happy in California, isn't it? Because every day is a sunny day. In the city of God, there will be no sun and there will be no clouds to cover over that sun because the presence of God will pervade every nook and cranny and he will be the source of glory and light and warmth and happiness and goodness and every good thing that we need because in the city of God, we enjoy the presence of God there with us. And the people of this city are there not by chance, but because he has chosen them. Verse 21, then will all your people be righteous. They will possess the land forever. They are the shoot that I have planted, the work of my hands. God is not sitting as as an aloof king, separate from this city. 
But he knows each of the individuals. He has placed them there. He has set them up as his own uh, garden, as it were. He tends them and cares for them. And verse 22, the chapter ends in with the most marvellous double entendre, a double meaning. In uh, the NIV, we've got, I am the Lord, in its time I will do this swiftly. The verb is, I will hasten it. I will hasten it. But that verb, hasten, can easily be read, or just as legitimately read, be enjoy it. God says, I will enjoy this city. God has not enjoyed his creation truly as it was ought to be enjoyed since the fall of Adam. When God looked at his creation and saw that it was very good and then sin came in and spoiled it. And no matter when God swept things across and began afresh with Noah and his family, yet sin was still there, still damaging, the reign of death still marring God's good creation. And yet now, in the, in the new city of God, God will look on his new creation and say, I enjoy it. This is just what I wanted. It's just the way I intended it to be. And Isaiah encourages those in darkness, those in despair, those Israelites sat in exile. It's not long now. It's coming soon. He will hasten it. It will not delay for one moment longer than it needs to be delayed for. As soon as it can come, It will be here. This is the glory of the city of God. This is the place where we in Christ are headed. Those who know the Redeemer, those who know the Spirit-anointed servant of the Lord will be invited to partake in the wealth and the wonders of this great city of God. The last question I want to end with briefly is when? When's it coming? In the New Testament, 1 Peter, Peter describes how uh, the prophets searched intently, trying to find out the time and the circumstances of the Messiah and the glories that would follow him. Isaiah himself was eager to know, when is this city going to be here? When are we going to enjoy its goodness? And Peter picks up on some of the imagery And says, look, it's here now. You already are a kingdom of priests. You are already being given the wealth of the nations. But in reality, the the fullness of this salvation is yet to come in the future. And you see that even from Isaiah's own writings. I've said that chapter 60 onwards is all about this, this future plan of salvation. But in chapter 63 and 64, you get, after Isaiah has described what salvation will look like, you get the worshippers come. And they call out to God and they say, God, you've made these promises. They are wonderful and we praise you for them. But but when? Make it happen, Lord. Fulfill your promise to us. And in 65, God says, it's coming, but it's not yet. There is a a new heaven. Uh, Chapter 65, verse 17. Behold, I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. This great city will not be fulfilled on this earth. It is not going to be fulfilled by political agreements, handing back control of uh, the Mount of Jerusalem to a Jewish nation state. That's not the way that these prophecies are going to be fulfilled. We're not just looking for a new way of life here. We're looking for a total new creation. And many of you, as we read through Isaiah chapter 60, you will have noticed many of the same themes are picked up later in the book of Revelation. When John describes the day when Christ will return. And this new creation will be inaugurated. 
this salvation is yet to come. And that in itself is a recurring theme through the New Testament. Hebrews 11, for example, describes Abraham, who was waiting for God to fulfill his promises to him. And we've thought already about how this great city is one part of the way God fulfills his promises to Abraham. But Abraham knew, Hebrews says, Abraham knew that he wasn't waiting for it here on this earth. He was looking forward to a to a heavenly city. And so he persevered and he waited and he knew that his time on, on, here on earth was as, a, as an alien and as a stranger and as a foreigner. His city was not going to be anywhere that he lived here on earth. Now, what's the application of all this? There are many practical applications that the New Testament gives. The way we use our time, what we fix our eyes on, the way we use our, our wealth and our gifts, what we prioritize in life. But for Isaiah, his purpose is simply comfort. Comfort the downtrodden. Comfort the brokenhearted. Comfort those who are stuck in sorrow. Comfort those who are grieving. Comfort those who are overwhelmed by the the monotony, the frustration, the, the hardships of life. Comfort them. Because the city of God is coming. And you are invited in Christ Jesus. And it will come quickly. We'll finish with those words from Jesus to his disciples. Do not let your heart be troubled. Don't be anxious. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I am going there to prepare a place for you.